The following podcast from Hope PR Ministry discusses the important doctrines within marriage. This is the first of a four-part series, and in this episode, we talk about marriage as a divine institution, its symbolism, and also how it is the bringing together of two to become one flesh. We hope that you enjoy this content and that you are edified by it. Hello and welcome to Hope PR Ministry, a podcast produced and published by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. My name is Josh Harris, and I am joined by my co-host, Jeff Carlsbeek. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? Hi, Josh. I'm well, and eager to have a discussion-style podcast, which we haven't done before. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very excited to do it as well. Uh, this is something totally new, as you say, and we've got an important subject to talk about today. Uh, so, Jeff, why don't you tell our listeners uh, what we'll be talking about? We'll be discussing marriage uh, with the express goal of talking about what God has revealed regarding marriage. In the world in which we live and in the Christian church today, there are many opinions and assumptions regarding marriage. I think it's safe to say that it's every believing child of God's experience, no matter what church or denomination they are members of, we want to know what our Lord says regarding a certain subject. Yeah, absolutely. And and to add to that as well, society itself makes a mockery of what marriage is itself. And we are also susceptible within the church to the errors of the world. So it's really important that we that we have a good, clear understanding of the subject. Um, so to help us understand it, we're joined by Professor David Engelsma today to talk about this subject. So welcome, Prof. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? It struck me when you young men came on the scene this afternoon to set this conference up that I am a son of Hope Protestant Reformed Church. My grandparents, Inglesma, and my great-grandmother were instrumental in the organization and formation of that church back in the 1920s. I have been a minister in the Protestant Reformed Churches for just about 60 years. I spent 25 years as pastor of two congregations, and then for the next 20 years, I served as professor of theology in the Protestant Reformed Seminary. So I've been a minister in the Protestant Reformed Churches and ordained minister for just shy of 60 years. I'm the father of nine children and the grandfather, my wife tells me, of 30-odd grandchildren and have been retired since 2008. But I've kept on working, especially writing. I've written a number of books. That keeps me busy. Yeah, regarding those books, you've authored at least two books which explain the scripture regarding marriage. For the sake of our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your ministry and pastoral experience regarding marriage? The special interest that I have come to have in marriage, and particularly the writing of some books on marriage, are due largely to my experience in the first congregation of which I was a pastor. That congregation did not have a background in the Protestant Reformed denomination. and In fact, the congregation had not been organized as a congregation very long before I got there, and what background they did have in marriage was erroneous, so that immediately upon my taking up my pastorate in that congregation, I was faced with serious sins, and problems with regard to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. 
and so extreme were those difficulties that within a year or two after I was pastor of that congregation, I had an experience one evening that I was convinced that the congregation was going to disband. And I was alone in my study and prayed, and my prayer was, the congregation will probably go down, by that I meant be, dis be uh, dissolved and scattered, but if we go down, we're going to go down with the word of God. That was a kind of answer by God himself to my deep concerns and even fears. That occasioned a series of sermons on Sunday evening of about 12 or 15 in number, in which I preached a series of sermons on just about everything the Bible teaches concerning marriage, as well as divorce and remarriage. The problem in the church at the time was the impermissibility of divorce and remarriage of one of the prominent members of the congregation. But I preached a series of sermons on divorce, on, on marriage, including divorce and remarriage, what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. And the result was that the congregation did not dissolve, but it came to acknowledge and confess the truth of marriage just as strongly as any traditional Protestant Reformed congregation. And it was that series of 12 or 15 sermons that I put into printed form and became the first book that I've written on marriage, Marriage, the Mystery of Christ and the Church, which has found its way into many circles. I was told a while back that it's now in its third printing. The next book that stands out is devoted strictly to marriage was uh, a book on 1 Corinthians 7 with Matthew 19, one of the most prominent passages in all of the Bible on the subject of marriage. So those would be the two main books and the explanation of them. Yeah, and, and also to note as well, for those who are interested in those books, um, so Marriage, the Mystery of Christ and His Church, and Better to Marry, which Prof just mentioned, um, they are published by the Reformed Free Publishing Association, uh, often shortened to uh, the RFPA. And if you want to find them and get them for yourself, uh, you can do so at rfpa.org. One more item before we begin. Uh, if our listeners have questions uh, that come up during the discussion, you may email them to hoperwc at gmail.com. We might be able to put together another episode where we have Professor Engelsma answer these questions that come in. So again, the email is hoperwc at gmail.com. Yeah, and we really appreciate hearing feedback from our listeners, so please feel free to get in touch if you've got anything at all. Um, so, Professor, you've had to deal with this subject in your ministry, which has led you to seek direction from the Lord by careful study of the scriptures regarding marriage. Um, and this is our interest as well. So would you be willing to give us a definition of marriage that you derive from God's word to really help us have a foundation of understanding what it is? Here follows a working definition of marriage, as brief as I could possibly make it without compromising the truth of marriage. Marriage is the divine ordinance for the human race consisting of a uniquely intimate relationship between one man, a male, and one woman, a female, they become one flesh, for the life of the two, 
which relationship God instituted as the outstanding symbol of the covenant union between Jesus Christ and his church. Okay, Professor, by your definition, you are saying that God tells us that he instituted marriage. It says marriage is the divine ordinance. Can you show us that marriage is not a man-made ordinance? That question, of course, is fundamental to everything that the Christian must believe and that I will have to say about marriage this afternoon. That it is a divine institution does indeed mean that God instituted marriage. And when God institutes something, it has authority, a binding authority. The revelation that God instituted marriage is the concluding section of Genesis chapter 2. After he had created the man, Adam, God saw that it was not good that the man be alone. There was something unsatisfactory about the aloneness of Adam. It was a deficiency. He was not complete. And God himself says there that he would make and help meet for him, a helper who is suitable to him, to provide for his lack and need. And then God caused Adam to fall asleep, took one of his ribs, and fashioned the female, Eve, out of that rib of Adam. And then God himself said that, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. All of that proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that marriage is the institution of God. And that's basic to everything else that the Bible has to say in the rest of Scripture, and it has plenty to say in the rest of Scripture. When I was going over the biblical testimony to marriage years ago in my series of sermons and in the book that resulted, it struck me how much the Bible has to say upon marriage. It would take a long time to list all of the passages in Scripture that have something important to say about marriage. But both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in virtually every passage that refers to and gives instruction about marriage, there is explicit reference back to God's institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. All that the Bible has to say about marriage hinges on the Genesis 2 account, depends on it, and applies it. For example, In Matthew 19, one of the important New Testament passages on marriage, when the Pharisees came with a question about the permissibility of divorce, and notably because they wanted to tempt him, their question was not a sincere request for information or instruction, and they brought up the fact that Moses tolerated a man putting away his wife, then Jesus responded, from the beginning it was not, it was not so, but God made them one flesh. He quoted from Genesis 2, so that that passage concerning the institution of marriage in Genesis 2 was authoritative for our Lord Jesus Christ himself. What he taught about marriage, and he taught more about marriage in the passage that I've just referred to, was based upon and in harmony with the account of the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. God's institution of marriage was authoritative and fundamental. So another thing, we're, we're assuming then too that Scripture is the infallible Word of God for everyone. The point that you just made is, is particularly important with regard to the subject that we're discussing, the subject of marriage. 
In my 25 years as a pastor in two churches, and even later on when I've been called upon to give marital counseling, I could not count the number of times that a man or a woman has confronted me with circumstances that in themselves would lead me to advise get a divorce as quickly as possible. It seemed so hopeless, and the marriage was so troubled. And I said to myself, and then said to them, if I were making the rules, making the laws, I would advise you to get a divorce tomorrow and find somebody more suitable. But I didn't institute marriage, and I'm not determinative of the laws governing marriage. God is. So regardless of your circumstances, God says you stay together, reconcile with each other, and maintain your marriage. So this matter of God's institution of marriage and making the laws concerning the practice of marriage, that it's divine, that's important practically. And I may add, if we married persons are honest with ourselves, probably more than once in our marriage because your wife and yourself are two sinful people who can hurt each other, when the thought comes up, can I continue to live with this man or can I continue to live with this woman? There comes to our rescue the truth. God brought us together. God is the insti- God has instituted our marriage. God requires and calls us to live together, to confess our sins and make peace with each other. So this matter of the authority of the instruction of the Bible about marriage is practically important to all married persons, I would say, in the church. We're brought together by God. And I've said that to more than one married couple. In my pastoral ministry, as I said, I had occasion more than once to deal with serious marriage problems, as every pastor does. When they talk, and that's happened frequently, it's obvious that they want me to say, Your circumstances are so dire that you probably ought to think about separating. And they would say, we made a some would say, even we made a mistake when we married each other. I would remind them, you made a vow to live with each other until death parts you. And they would say, we made a mistake. And my response has been, but God didn't make a mistake. God brought you together. God calls you to stay together and to live together in the right way. So this matter of the institution of marriage by God and the authority he has in determining what our marriages are is of great practical importance in the church too, where thoughts of divorce come up from time to time. I think, yeah, it's a very important point, as you say, to mention that it's God who institutes marriage. It's God who glues two to become one. Um, And the world today would have you say that marriage is instituted by man. And if it's instituted by man, then man can make his own rules and they seek to do away with the fact that it is God's God's joining. That's the issue. Right. And the result of ignoring that God instituted marriage, it's his ordinance, and he makes the rules about his ordinance that explains the dissolution of so many marriages with disastrous consequences for society because God instituted marriage in Genesis 2 before the church was formed. Marriage is not an ordinance just for the church. It's an ordinance for the whole wide world. God created the human race as married. 
And when it's forgotten and ignored and opposed that God instituted marriage, it's a divine ordinance, the result is divorce and remarriage, and that's simply catastrophic for society. If I were to answer the question, what's the main problem in the United States today? It wouldn't be the climate or drugs or violence, but it would be the dissolution of marriage in the United States. If marriage is dissolved on a wide scale, society falls apart because God instituted the human race in marriage and family. And marriage, of course, is basic to family. That's why we have scores and hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of young people without the solid environment of a marriage and a family. A father and a mother who love each other and are faithful to each other and raise their family together. The politicians never notice that because many of the politicians are as unfaithful in marriage as the people that they're supposed to, to govern. Well, this is basic to society, and I haven't said anything yet about the importance of marriage in the family for the church. So, speaking of God's ordinance, then, would it be uh, correct to uh, speak of that ordinance as something that God built into the creation, similar to the law of gravity? In the moral sense of the word, that's certainly true. The human race is built to exist in marriage in the family. That's part of what it means to be human. So similarly to if you defy the law of gravity, you're going to hurt yourself. In Genesis 2, the fundamental passage on marriage, we read that after God created the man on the sixth day of creation, God saw that it was not good that man be alone. There was a deficiency in God's creation. He said so. That was a deficiency that he intended to take care of and to take care of in a short time. But that's the importance of marriage. If the man was alone, marriage not having been instituted yet, something was lacking in the creation that had to be supplied. So you can say, and I do say, that the creation of humanity in the beginning included as an essential aspect marriage. Only when Eve was created and joined to Adam in the first marriage ceremony, which God conducted, and at which he had a short sermon, the last verses of Genesis 2, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother. That was God preaching a marriage sermon. God created humanity as married. And to attack marriage, as not only the world does flamboyantly, but as also the churches are doing too, influenced by the culture as they are, is to attack the essence of humanity. One form of that attack is the breakup of homes so that children are destroyed. That brings to mind another incident in my own ministry. I had a man and a woman come to me because for a long time they'd been living in turmoil and strife. At one point in their marriage, they allowed a trouble to take over. They didn't confess their sin, and that grew. The devil saw his opportunity until finally when they came to see me, they hated each other. They were determined to divorce. They poured out their tale of woe, first one, then the other, expecting me to show by my face that I sympathized with them and went along with their obvious intention to divorce which I didn't do. I stared at them impassively. 
Finally, the man got the message, and he leaned forward in his chair and said, You don't think we should stay together just for the children, do you? They had a large family. Then I smiled for the first time and said, That's the first Christian thing I've heard since you came here and talked. If you don't stay together for any other reason, yes, stay together for the children, and in the meantime, learn to love each other. Spare them all the misery and shame and sorrow of a breakup of their own home. So... That's the importance of marriage for humanity. Right, and in saying that about the children as well, that's just highlighting the fact of how much of an effect and how much of a uh, trial it is upon the children themselves to endure a broken home. Um, and I wonder if I could ask another question as well. You, you mentioned a couple times already about people who have uh, come to you with their marriage issues. And I wonder, like, what were often the issues in their marriage and, and why... Why were they having these problems in their marriage? Was there a lack of remembering of the doctrines behind it? Where, where did the, the issue stem from? Occasionally, the cause was adultery on the part of the man or the woman. But that was not the majority of the instances. When I look back over my own uh, marital counseling, I conclude that the majority of cases were Cases that really resulted in mistreatment of each other, either physical abuse or mental abuse by name-calling or other actions of which the one or the other did not repent. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. That verse came to my mind time and time again when I was doing marital counseling. It could be a little thing. He spilled at the table or she disobeyed some minor will of his. And that wasn't taken care of. Not the same day and not for weeks and months, and it grew. There's a devil who is as interested in destroying marriage in the family as you and I are interested in maintaining marriage in the family. He sees an opening like that, that two who live together so closely sin against each other without repenting, and repenting in a hurry. And as the days and months go by, he separates them further and further and increases their displeasure with each other until it becomes outright hatred. They hate each other. And that's the majority of cases, for me anyway, of marital counseling. It's a sad situation. Yeah. But with God's ordinance as uh, the rule, that has to be the, the only help for such cases. But this, this is God's rule and ordinance, not to be disobeyed. Isn't that the way in which we live with our true spiritual husband, Jesus Christ. We haven't touched on that yet. To my mind, the real marriage, the all-important marriage, is the marriage of Jesus Christ and the church, of which our earthly marriages are a symbol. How do we live with Jesus Christ? We confess our sin and are forgiven daily. And if we impenitently go on in our sin against God and against him, our experience is that the divide between him and us becomes wider and wider, until we finally found our, find ourselves in extreme spiritual straits. The way is the way of repentance. And husbands and wives have to do that. Far more important than giving sexual instruction is giving spiritual instruction like that to the married members of the congregation. Uh, can we distinguish uh, marriage as a creation ordinance uh, rather than a church ordinance, like baptism would be one example of a church ordinance? versus uh, marriage as a creation ordinance. I know 
the Roman Catholic Church, they have marriage as a sacrament, so it's almost like it's a church ordinance. Marriage is not a sacrament. I point to the fact that marriage was instituted prior to the entrance into human life of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Marriage belongs to creation, and that's why it's an ordinance for the world as well as for the church. And the rule about marriage or the law concerning marriage against divorce and remarriage applies to the world as well as it does to the church. It's not a sacrament, but it is by the will of God, or it has become by the will of God, an outstanding symbol, undoubtedly the most striking symbol of the spiritual reality of the covenant between Christ and the church. It's as though the Creator has taken marriage and brought it into the sphere of the church so that marriage among believers has a special place in symbolizing the relationship of Christ and the church and also being used by God for the bringing forth of covenant children and the establishment of the environment of a covenant Christian home for the rearing of those children. God has taken that creation ordinance and applied it to the church in a special way and to the life of believers in a special way. It's still not a sacrament, contrary to the teaching of Rome, but it is of special importance and use in the church. I've uh, heard it uh, said too before that uh, there's a contemporary view of marriage and then there's the traditional view of marriage. Can marriage change? There's one proper and authoritative and Christian view of marriage, and that's the view of marriage that is set down plainly and often in the scriptures. In keeping with the ordaining of marriage in Genesis 2, and in line with what the prophet Malachi says in Malachi 2 about marriage, and in keeping with the presentation of marriage in the Song of Solomon, that's a book that's often overlooked when people talk about marriage, and the blessed the blessedness of marriage, but in keeping with all that Old Testament doctrine, the New Testament defines marriage and applies the instruction of marriage in keeping with the ordinance of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. In Matthew 19, in Mark 10, in Luke 16, verse 18, in Romans 7, and in 1 Corinthians 7, and those are only some of the passages, the New Testament teaches and exhorts one and only one doctrine of marriage. And that's what I suppose is meant by the reference to marriage as the traditional doctrine of marriage. But then the traditional doctrine of marriage is a tradition that the church is bound to observe until the world ends. There is no place for a new doctrine of marriage. A new doctrine of marriage by virtue of the word new is an erroneous doctrine of marriage if it departs from, and insofar as it departs from the doctrine of marriage laid down in the Gospels, in Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7. That traditional, authoritative, biblical doctrine of marriage is one man, and we have to emphasize man nowadays, so far has society fallen. The biblical doctrine of marriage is one male and one female, brought together by God in this most intimate relationship for life, so that the only dissolution of that marriage bond, I may have opportunity to come back to this. I Notice I said bond, I didn't say contract, and that's significant. There's only one 
biblical doctrine of marriage that the church has to observe in all ages and among all peoples. I think you hit the nail on the head by saying that as well. I think some might seek to excuse their uh, sinful relationships by trying to do away with the Old Testament, Genesis 2. But the fact is that the New Testament backs up and refers back to Genesis 2 time and time again. So we cannot take a different view on marriage. There, there is one view to be had on marriage. And, and again, that is God's view, uh, which is expressed throughout scriptures. And the Bible itself talks about marriage as a mystery. And I was wondering if you'd be able to um, explain to us and to our listeners what uh, this mystery is and how we should interpret that. Leading up to my answer to that question, what Ephesians chapter 5 toward the end means when it calls marriage the mystery, there are, in my judgment, three related but distinct phases of the biblical truth of marriage. The first and fundamental is the relationship between Christ and the church, which the Reformed faith, in keeping with Scripture, calls the covenant of grace. Christ is married to the church, and he's married to the church according to God's eternal appointment of that relationship. Then, in the second place, marriage, the phase, there's a phase of marriage that consists of the instruction of the New Testament about the relationship of a man and a woman in the church in marriage. The ordinance of marriage that you and I live in if we're married. That's a phase of the truth of marriage. When God was appointing Christ in his eternal decree as the husband of the church in the covenant of grace, it's not as though God said, I'm going to create Adam and Eve as married, and now I wonder what I can appoint as a picture of that, and then he appointed the gospel truth of the covenant. But the truth is that God first determined the marriage of Christ and the church, and then, so to speak, asked himself, what now can I create and ordain as a picture, a lively, strong picture of the relationship between Christ and the church? And he decided on earthly marriage between a man and a woman. So that would be a phase, the creation ordinance of Genesis 2. And the third phase of marriage would be the marriage among us as two Christians marrying who are one in the faith. Now, I've forgotten your question, so let me ask you <laughs> the, to repeat that. The, the question was uh, with regards to the term mystery and how it is used in the Bible. How, how should we interpret that, that term? Um, I mean, you use that in the title of your book on marriage. Uh, how may that term mystery be applied to marriage? That description of marriage is found in the last part of Ephesians 5. Paul is comparing earthly marriage in the church between believers with the relationship of Christ and the church. And then at the conclusion of his description of earthly marriage as a man's loving his wife and the wife's submission to her husband, Paul says in a kind of exclamation, this is a great mystery. And you would think that he's referring to the relationship of a man and a woman in marriage, because he's been emphasizing that. And there is something mysterious about that union, that we become one flesh with another human being, is mysterious, difficult to explain. You really can only experience that in marriage rather than fully explain it. Anyway, Paul exclaims, this is a great mystery. And right at the point where you think he's referring to earthly marriage, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the great mystery. 
the union of Christ and the church. And at the in the second part of Ephesians 5, that's really the main topic. He's not so much talking about earthly marriage as he is teaching about the spiritual relationship of Christ and the church. That's the great mystery. And that relationship between Christ and the church is a mystery in that it's hidden, unknowable, except that God has made it known. God has revealed it so that we do know this great mystery of Christ and the church. That's the idea. We would never be able to discover that on our own. It has to be made known to us by a special revelation through the gospel, which is what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 5. So the main subject in Ephesians 5, which is one of the main chapters in the Bible on marriage, the main subject is not earthly marriage of a Christian man and a Christian woman, as we might think, especially because it's often preached or spoken on at marriages. The main subject at the end of Ephesians 5 is the union of Christ and the church. And God created marriage or ordained marriage to be a picture, a symbol of Christ and the church. Interesting. So that would be one of the purposes of God in instituting marriage. And he did that to reflect Christ and his church even before the fall. That's correct. Which is, as you've suggested, evidence that the fall was ordained by God, decreed by God, sinful as it was on our part. There's no Christ apart from the fall. And that also is indicative of the fact that the salvation we now enjoy with Christ is better than the good life that Adam and Eve lived in paradise. The true marriage with all its pleasure and delight and the Christian man and the Christian woman begin to experience that in their marriage too. It's by no means all fighting. There's a joy in earthly marriage between a Christian man and a Christian woman. That can't compare with the delight and joy and blessedness of the union we have with Christ in the spiritual marriage. Can you show us some of the um, important truths about marriage from Genesis 2 then? God created everything, and then each time he said he saw that it was good, and that's imperfection. So how, how can it be that in perfection, God said it's not good? before sin. God said that it was not good that the man be alone when Adam alone was on the scene. That was before Eve was created. And in order to indicate that the creation of Eve completed the creation of man so that it would be good for man to live. That is, God wasn't admitting defeat, but he was paving the way for the next act of his in creation, the creation of Eve, and showing that the creation of Eve and the giving of Eve to Adam, and that's another aspect of the passage, God brought Eve to Adam to be his wife. So that's another aspect of the original marriage ceremony. God was the officiant, and God brought his creature Eve, the woman, to Adam to be Adam's wife. And I would say that the outstanding feature of the Word of God concerning marriage, the outstanding feature of marriage that's emphasized in what God says about marriage at the end of Genesis 2, is the intimacy, the fellowship that comes out, especially in the phrase one flesh. They became one flesh. 
such a union as there is now not two fleshes, but one flesh, which does not only refer to the body of the man and the woman, although that's certainly included, but also the psychological aspects of male and female. The psychology of a man is different from the psychology of a woman. The soul of a man is different from the soul of a woman in that they have their own distinctive features and the union of the female attributes with the male attributes is part of the one flesh. So that intimacy, the the oneness, I think, is the outstanding feature of that word of God at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And that's what Christ refers to and quotes in Matthew 19 as well. That enters into the matter of divorce. In the final analysis, divorce is not only wrong, it's impossible. God joins the male and the female together in marriage, and man cannot dissolve that union. He mayn't, mayn't try, but he can't do it. Only God can dissolve a marriage. And I would say that even for God, it takes some doing. Only death, which is extreme, as we all know from a certain kind of experience, only death can separate what God has joined together. Death is in God's hands, so only God can separate what he has joined. So that union is not a activity, then. That's, that's a state of being, almost. That's correct. It's built in. Yeah. There's a certain experience of that. No matter how young you are when you're married, you feel that oneness. Something mysterious about the earthly marriage, too. The great mystery of Ephesians 5 refers to the union of Christ and the church, but there's something mysterious regarding earthly marriage as well, that two individuals are joined as closely as they are in marriage, carries something mysterious with it. And the older you get, under God's blessing, the closer that union becomes, so that married people who've been living together, Christian people now who've been living together a long time, cannot envision living without the husband or the wife. Two natures become one unity. Uh, it, it's, it is the mystery. That is the mystery between a man and a woman. And still, in view of the fact that by nature we're all individualistic, self-seeking, our human nature is opposed to living with another and giving of oneself to another, and allowing another to impinge upon our individuality. Such is God's work of marrying a believer with another believer that you give of yourself to and for the sake of the one you're married to. It's striking to me that when when talking about one flesh, God never refers to a, a woman-child relationship as one flesh. And there, the child is in the mother's womb for normally nine months. So if there's ever a time where it would seem like they were one flesh, but but never, the, the parent-child relationship is never spoken of as one flesh. And you have referred to an extraordinarily close relationship, mother and child. But in that marriage ordinance of Genesis 2, it starts out, doesn't it? The man shall leave his father and mother. That's indicative of the fact that the marriage relationship is closer than the parent-child relation. 
the way the man turns his back on his parents. Now, you have to understand that in the right way. But the, the relationship with his wife supersedes the relationship with his father and mother. And that can be a practical problem if a man marries and still maintains a wrong, close relationship with his parents. Nothing must interfere with the marriage relationship. So we kind of talked about um, verse 18. Maybe we could read that. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Obviously, the married woman helps her husband in all kinds of earthly ways. She's a help to her husband in a striking way in the sexual relationship. We mustn't overlook the importance of that aspect of marriage. That's referred to in Genesis 2 at the very end. They were naked and were not ashamed. That's a way of saying the sexual relationship is honorable. It's not, re it's not shameful. It's an important part of the marriage relationship, and it's a perfectly honorable aspect of marriage. And the woman as need not be described as a help to her husband in that regard. But as I suggested earlier, there's more to it than that. There are definite characteristics of masculinity and definite psychological and spiritual characteristics of femininity. And strong as the man is, psychologically and emotionally, he's one-sided if he doesn't have a balancing and helping feminine. And that's applied in a particular way to the raising of children, I think. God intends the human race to come from the union of the man and the woman and intends that, that marriage shall be important for the rearing of the children. And if the man rears children all by himself, there's an overemphasis on rigidity and strong discipline. And the woman balances that or adds to that with a certain softness and gentleness so that the two together do in their rearing of children what the man alone would not be able to do, not able to do very well. I think in saying that as well, I think you, you do a nice job of, of showing the importance of the man and the woman in the home. Uh, and when it was the case that Adam was alone, God made him aware of his incompleteness, his his lack, I suppose you could say. And this helps him or helped him rather to uh, be aware of, of Eve's qualities and that was necessary, that she was necessary for his own completion, I guess you could say. That's an astute observation. He had to know himself that he was incomplete without her, so that he did not receive her as a luxury, but as a necessity. And that's how we men must view our wives also. There are men who sin by looking at the wife as kind of an appendage, not really necessary. He can use her but she's not necessary for the marriage or for the family, and that's a dreadful mistake. Adam had to learn his inadequacy or incompleteness by God's bringing the animals to him. That was a, a visible lesson to Adam. He wanted to teach Adam that it was not good that Adam be alone, so he brought all the animals in front of him for Adam to name. There were always two of them, male and female. And that impressed upon Adam, there's something wrong with my estate, something incomplete about my condition and place. And only then did God create the, the woman for Adam. I'm struck that uh, God often works that way 
that's a pattern that God has uh, worked for his children throughout history, that he doesn't just give them things and provide for them, but he always shows us and makes us consciously aware of our need. And, and then often after that, he gives. An effective way of teaching. Yeah. And all of these things, again, they relate back to the picture of Christ and his church and how the two are necessary for each other. And I guess just as a question, I guess for the both, for the two of you, Jeff and, and Prof, as married men, do you see that marriage um, brings out the picture of Christ and his church more? That's a living picture and I think a witness to the world. The world around us often doesn't give us the opportunity to speak to it about marriage or about anything else. But they can't help but notice in all our contacts with the world and our daily life that these people stay married for years and years, 50, 60 years. And obviously they treat each other the way husbands should treat their wives and wives should treat their husbands. And they may even ask sometimes in one way or another, what's the explanation of this? And then we better be ready to give the answer. That's the relationship really of Christ and the church. And that gives us an opportunity to witness. But the very way we live in marriage is a witness, a testimony to the world of Jesus Christ and the church. Yeah, and, and you talk about the way in which we live in marriage as well. And is there something to be said about, well, disobeying God's law leads to issues within marriage and uh, that obedience within marriage leads to a long and good marriage? Is there something to be said to that or is that irrelevant? I think there's definitely something to be said for that. When we walk in God's ways, that itself is a blessing. And that becomes the way in which he gives us joy and delight in the circumstances of our life. Marriage now. When you go on in your marriage from year to year, you're happy in your marriage, so to speak, and joyful in your marriage, and that has an effect upon your family as well. The children and grandchildren delight to be in your presence, get together with you. That's the way God works out his saving purposes. Yeah, and there's a there's a joy to live in in obedience to God in in marriage, and even uh, when we talk about that joy as well, it doesn't necessarily have to refer to the earthly sense. The true joy that is in marriage is in Christ, and the picture that marriage represents in Christ. And people who are married, especially a long time, speak of that too. That Christ is responsible for the joy in our marriage, rather than that we can't stand each other, and it's a pain to look at each other over the dinner table. Christ works that so that we may reflect him in the church, which is a privilege and an honor, the main purpose of our marriage after all. So there's definitely that element. So we can talk about the joys of marriage and may we understand marriage as being a necessity as God's people. The rule on the basis of how God created men and women in the beginning, in God's own verdict that it's not good for man to be alone, the rule is marriage. And I think the church has to preach that today, especially with regard to the young people. I understand what's going on in worldly society is delaying marriage, postponing marriage as long as possible for the sake of a good time, apart from the responsibilities of marriage. And the fact is that 
it's not good to be alone, so that delaying marriage unduly is not wise. We're made to be married. But there are exceptions, and that's dealt with in the great New Testament chapter on marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. After Paul has given instruction in the first verses about life together in marriage, particularly the sexual aspect of marriage, he says that he speaks this by permission and not by command, which means he's not commanding everybody to get married. He allows for the exception, but it is an exception. There are some in the church who are not gift who are not gifted with the need for marriage or the desire for marriage and are able to live a single life. Paul, after all, was not married, so he talks about the exception, but you have to be gifted to be single. And then he says your reason for not being married is that you can devote yourself more fully to the Lord. He doesn't say avoid marriage as much as possible for the sake of living it up and avoiding the responsibilities of marriage in the family. But if you have the gift, then remain single with a view to devoting your life more fully to Christ and to the church. So marriage is the rule, but not the absolute rule. And and staying single as well is not an excuse to enjoy the pleasures of the world, of course. It's easy to make an excuse that you want to, you know, save to have a house, you want to enjoy the single life, but God has given us marriage and it's something that should not be delayed, as you say. Is there a sense uh, that a man can be married and still living alone? Something is grievously amiss, either on the part of the man or the woman or both of them, if that is the situation. But of course, if a man commits adultery, his wife has the right to divorce him, and then he ends up living alone. But it's wrong that he would be in that circumstance. It's also the case that if a man mercilessly and impenitently abuses his wife, he shows in the language of 1 Corinthians 7 that he's not willing to dwell with her. An impenitent abuser is the same as an unbeliever, and he's not willing to live with his wife He's willing to abuse her, but he's not willing to live with her. So he drives her out of the house and ends up living alone. But of course, it's wrong that he's done that. He shouldn't be in that situation. He should not be abusing his wife. I was thinking, too, along the lines of being married, but uh, the man being more independent and not recognizing his or not living according to his calling. They could you mean they're living under the same roof, but he's really living independently of his of his wife. Is that in a sense living alone? Yes, it's a sin. He's disobeying his calling to love his wife. To to love a woman is to live with her, to share your life with her. And that's a possibility that a man is actually under the roof with his wife, but he doesn't share his life with her. And there again the great symbol is important. Jesus loves us not by going off independently from us, but he lives with us by his Holy Spirit and by his word, shares his life with us, takes us into his confidence, and assures us that he's with us. A man who doesn't do that is disobedient to his calling to show forth the symbolism of Christ. And that's something that can happen and can trouble a marriage seriously 
And to my mind, elders ought to be investigating matters like that on family visitation rather than conduct a, an abbreviated Bible study. They ought to be looking into the condition of the marriage, not only investigate whether he's hitting her, but whether he's living with her. So that's a real danger that you propose. If a man is working all the time and then golfing in his spare time so that he's never home, never really involves himself in the raising of the children that way too, he's not dwelling with her the way he's called to do. Yeah, I'm again relating things back to our doctrines as well. If one, one lives independent from the other, that is not testament to the picture of what marriage is. Christ lives in his church and through his church. And when a husband does not do that, he is not picturing the marriage of Christ in his church. He is neglecting that. Christ said on more than one occasion to his disciples who represented the church, I am with you, lo, I am with you till the end of the world. And that's been a comfort to God's people too. I think of lonely people, wives who've been abandoned by their husband or husbands whose wives have left them. They'll cry out, I'm alone. And the comfort that the church brings is Christ is with you. He's never left you and he will never leave you. That's what husbands have to represent to their wives. Yeah, and I, I know that we're kind of hitting our time already, but uh, when resolving issues like that, well, how do you go about resolving that? You're, you remind them of, of the fact that Christ is with them. Is that the foundation of your, your helping and your counseling of, of married couples? Yes. So all men, including your husband, forsakes you. Christ is with you. And of course, if the man is still in the house, then the church admonishes too, admonishes him. And that ought to be part of the preaching. We ought not only say to husbands, don't commit adultery, but we ought to say to husbands, live with your wife, share your life with her. She gave herself to you and you gave yourself to her. Now carry it out. So we've had a good conversation for, uh, for an hour. And maybe it's time to wrap up this uh, episode. Yeah. Uh, once again, if the listeners have questions, they can email hoperwc at gmail.com with questions on uh, this episode. Thanks again for, for sitting down with us and having this conversation, Prof. I think it's been a beneficial time for us. We've learned yeah. a lot and, and had a good, good conversation. Good. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. In the next episode in this series, we will be discussing the important biblical truths concerning divorce and remarriage. We hope that you can tune in for that.